Again, as Ashley said, thank you, Ashley, that we will have a uh, time of community and and pancakes and this kickoff of Lent, uh, which today is the first Sunday of. Uh, And so please, uh, we welcome, whether it's your first day here or you've been here for a while, uh, please uh, join us for that. It'll be a great, great time to meet people and to really reflect uh, on Lent. And so with that said, uh, this Lent, between, so between now and, and April, uh, we are starting a new series, all Bethany-wide, uh, and it's going to be called Simply 23, the number 23. And, and what that stands for uh, is uh, Psalms 23, which we will unpack for the next several weeks. And, and really, it's only uh, six verses. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at these six uh, what that some would call very famous verses that we'll read in just a moment and see how this uh, impacts our life in the season of Lent. So Lent is this ancient uh, word meaning springtime, which is kind of ironic. It's snowing today. Uh, but we celebrate, we kick off Lent, uh, which means springtime, as we enter into a season of new life. And, and when we talk about new life, we get, we get new life because there's a season of death. And in order to have new life, something has to go away. And so the season of Lent is putting to death things of our lives that are prohibiting us from moving forward to new life. And so Lent, springtime, this is when we participate in that. And so let me read the verses to you, and then we'll unpack just a few words even this morning. The word of the Lord in Psalm 23 says this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Verse 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley, or some translations, in the darkest shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for, for life as we celebrate the dedication of Annabelle and the Woods family. We thank you for the whole family and what a gift that they have been to this congregation. Thank you that we get to participate in such joy that you bring. And God, as we enter into Lent and we examine Psalm 23, God, teach us what this means for our lives. Teach us this idea of springtime, of of pursuing a new and resurrected life that we just sang of. And when there's resurrected life, what is it in our lives that we need to put to death? To fast from, to remove. God, convict us of that. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so, the last weekend I was in California, or actually I would say this weekend I was in California. 
Uh, and, you know, we were there to, to, the primary reason was to eat food, of course, drink coffee. Uh, for those of you that know me, I'm a big coffee nerd. I love to uh, go out and check out other coffee shops. Uh, and, and not only that, but to visit friends. Uh, and it was just a, it was an awesome time. Uh, and I remember we were waiting at a restaurant, uh, and it was probably mid-70s, close to 80 degrees in California. This is the Bay Area even. Uh, and, you know, people were wearing down jackets, and fleeces, and parkas, and here we were, uh, kind of visible tourists, wearing shorts, and t-shirts, and sunglasses, and, and, you know, ready to enjoy the day, and apparently 75 was a cold day in California, Uh, but what I missed was a huge windstorm, or rainstorm, or something in in, in Washington, is that true? Yeah, yeah, okay, well, I missed that. I was in uh, 80 degree weather, and this morning I come to a little bit of snow in 30, 40 degree weather. Uh, so it's a little interesting transition uh, for me. But uh, over the weekend, when we were visiting different coffee shops, something interesting happened to me. I visited one shop, uh, and as I was paying, I ordered my coffee, I was paying, and as I was paying, he said, what is your name? So when my coffee is up, then they can call me, and then I can grab my coffee. And and this happens almost every single time uh, people ask me for my name. I say, it's Prentice. And then we go back and forth, the usual, wait, what is it? It's Prentice. Princess? No, not Princess. Prentice. Like the, like the Apprentice? Yes, like The Apprentice. You know, and a lot of people think that's original. Like The Apprentice, right? Like, yeah, like everybody says that. Uh, and, you know, to break out my, my credit card here, this is how you spell my name. And finally, uh, the conversation is finally over. And what that reminded me of uh, for a brief second was actually my childhood. Can you imagine growing up as an elementary school kid with the name Prentice? And I get this all the time. And names are so significant, right? And for me, I was almost borderline embarrassed of my name because people or kids would find ways to, to make fun of me or give me nicknames that I never asked for, like princess, like the apprentice, and all these other things. And I remember there was a school project, even you know, similar to my name, where we had to write out our initials in block letters, then color it in, and the teacher would hang it up uh, as an R project. Uh, and for those of you that don't know my initials, my name is Prentice Park. So those are my initials, P-P. Okay, I thought it was funny, maybe not. <laughs> all that to say is I remember thinking my name was kind of embarrassing. I wish I had a different name. And there were other moments where I had these friends where we'd go out into the woods, we had water guns, and we would do this battle with our water, water guns, and we'd pretend we were like some soldiers or some warriors, uh, and all my friends would have different names. You know, like one of my friends would say, my name is Nitro, because apparently Nitro is just, uh, you know, just a really B.A. name. Sorry, can I say that? I guess I can say that. I don't know. Uh, or my other friends, I would say, my name is uh, Rambo uh, or, or Commando or all these just really rough, you know, warrior-type names. And they would say, Prentice, well, what is your name? And this is my opportunity to make up my own name. And I kid you not, every single time I would say, I want to be Mike. <laughs> like, and they would look at me like, Mike? Like, no, you have to have a warrior name. It's like, no, I want to have a normal name. My name in this water gun battle is Mike. 
And I remember going to, in middle school, going to my mom and my dad, and I said, finally, all right, where did you get this name Prentice from? Because, you know, I have to deal with people making fun of me and all these nicknames and all this teasing. All right, mom, where did you get the name Prentice? And, and she would say, uh, and I'll never forget this. She looks at me and says, your name means uh, someone who learns, a learner. Uh, or better yet, the reason why I named you Prentice is because we figured you would be or wanted you to be a disciple. The name means disciple. And so even from that point on, uh, when kids would make fun of me, I'd say, oh, yeah, well, my name means disciple. That didn't help. <laughs> didn't help at all. But there was something profound about actually knowing my name that changed the way I viewed myself the way I uh, viewed even my family, and and even who I wanted to be as I grew up and as I grew older. And it kind of fit. I ended up being a pastor. And and even in the Bible, names were significant. When we do baby dedications, we ask, where did you get the name? Because names are significant. Oftentimes, it's a projection of who the family wants you to be. Or, Or oftentimes in the Bible, it is who you are. And so God names you this because that's who you are. You know, I named my, I got a new, for those of you that know, I got a new, I got a puppy. And, and I named her Selah. Because in ancient Hebrew, Selah means rest and peace. Where you, where you find rest and peace. I'm still waiting for that name to, to come into fruition. It hasn't yet done that. But names are significant. Even in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, there were several different names for God. Because it was a description of God, of who God is, how God acted, how God loved, and how God provided. And so there was names like El Shaddai, God Almighty. In the land of different religions in ancient Babylon, where there's cultic gods and there's Mesopotamian gods, El Shaddai was, this is the God Almighty. Above all names, above all every other God. Jehovah Jireh, God my provider. God, my provider. Jovanisi, God, my banner. Adonai, God, my master. Elohim, God, the simple name of God. And what we see here in Psalm 23, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord uh, is, is what in Hebrew, which many of us have heard, is the word, is the name Yahweh. And the first time that God calls himself Yahweh is in Exodus chapter 3 when they say, well, who, who should I say you are? And let me just read it to you. Exodus chapter 3, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. They ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And then what we see here in verse 17, he says, And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezzarites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
So Moses is called to go to his people, the Israelites, and say, all right, we're going to leave Egypt out of slavery, and God is going to remove us from here and bring us to this land of flowing with milk and honey. It hasn't happened yet, but God is going to take us out of this slavery and bring us to new life. We're going to put death to this season of life, and there's going to be a resurrected life in this land flowing with milk and honey. Let's go. And so Moses was asking God, okay, let's say I go to my people, and they say, well, who sent me? And there wasn't really a straightforward answer. God said simply, tell them my name is I am. Yahweh. Yahweh means I am. And what we have to understand about this word Yahweh is that it's a continuous active verb set in the future tense. So if you uh, conjugate different English words, depending on how it's written out, it's either past tense or future tense. It's either a verb, it's an action word, it's a, it's a noun, or whatever it is. Same thing with ancient Hebrew. In ancient Hebrew, Yahweh was a continuous active verb in the future tense. So, so let me wrap this up for you. What that means is, yes, the English translators has done us a favor by saying, well, it means I am. But really, that doesn't really do it justice because of the future tense. A better way to translate the word Yahweh, God, is I am who I am, yes, but I will be who you need me to be. I will become the God you need me to become. It's a different way to look at this word Yahweh. It's a different way to view God, especially in Psalm 23, uh, in relationship to Exodus 3, where uh, the rescue hasn't yet happened yet. There's a promise, there's a declaration that Yahweh, whose name is I am, but also I am, I will be who you need me to be, to the Israelites was a real thing, was important for them to hear, especially throughout the Exodus when they were lost, during times of pain, during times of you know, heartache and death and, and sickness and sorrow. And as they were going through, they had to remember that God's name was I will be. Don't you worry. I will be who you need me to be. They may not see it at the time. They may be going through hardship and whatever it was, but the reminder from Moses to the people was our God is Yahweh. The God who will be who you need God to be. In other words, God will show up. Says the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Immediately, David, the psalmist, wrote, Lord, Yahweh. And if you know anything about David's life, you know that David has, has some ups and his downs in, in his life. And, and during this time, he, he sees that, you know, he has sinned, he has done you know, he has lied, he's, he's killed, he's committed adultery, he's done all these things. And he says, in the midst of that, God will redeem. And, and maybe this is a story for all of us in this room. Yahweh. And, and maybe some of us, we need to hear this. God will be who you need God to be. In, in other words, God will show up 
in the places in your life that you need God to show up. And some of us, we need God to show up right now. And I don't understand God's timing. I don't know God's ways. Uh, but the promise is real that God's name is Yahweh, the one who will show up. And even, you know, uh, last weekend when we were reading about what happened in Parkland, Florida. It's hard for me to say this out loud because we're so far away and it's easier said than done. It's easier said than to believe. But we have to believe that even in the midst of that, whatever they're going through, which I can't even imagine, I have to believe, even if it's on their behalf, that God is going to show up. And I don't know what you all are going through. And the statement, the reality is true for me too. Whether it's in your relationships, your marriages, your children. Maybe, you, maybe it's in your career. Maybe it's in your finances. What other, what other places, what are the places that you have needs? What are the places that perhaps you even doubt that God is going to show up? And maybe the message for you today is Yahweh. God will be who you need God to be. The promise is God will show up. Maybe it's in your health. Maybe it's in my, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's in addiction or anxiety, or depression, or some other mental illness. The promise that we cling to, even during seasons where it's unbelievable, is a promise that God will show up. That is who God claims himself to be, even when he says to Moses, my name is Yahweh, I am. And it's this future promise. I love that. And I've promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land flowing with milk and honey. Some of us were in Egypt and we're experiencing the misery of Egypt is what uh, Dave calls. And God says, I have promised to bring you up out of it. Will you believe that this morning? And maybe it's for somebody else. Will you believe that on behalf of somebody else? Will you pray for others? Will you pray for Parkland, Florida? And not only pray for their well-being, but pray that there will be action, that something will change. And I've said this time and time again, prayer without action is really no prayer at all. And we lean into this promise that God has for us in his name, Yahweh. I will be who I need to be for you. And I love that it says, uh, the Lord is my shepherd. David, David says, God is my shepherd. The shepherd is the one for all, obviously many of us know, shepherd is the one who cares for the sheep. And David knows a lot about what it means to be a shepherd. David was a shepherd himself. 
And so he uses this analogy, this comparison, and says, the Lord, Yahweh, the one uh, who will be who I need God to be, is also my shepherd. It's very intentional that David, a shepherd boy himself, calls God his shepherd. Because what he knows about shepherd is that without the shepherd, the sheep will die. The sheep, for lack of a better word, are dumb. They couldn't survive on their own. They were vulnerable to be prey. They would get lost. They just simply would not survive without the help and the guidance of the shepherd. And and do you see what, what David is doing? I love what David is doing. It's his sense of humility. David, who ends up being a king, a man for God's own heart, says, you know what? God is my shepherd. Well, what does that mean? If God is his shepherd, then he is the sheep. He's fessing up to this idea saying, you know what? For lack of a better word, I'm dumb. Not in a pejorative way, not in a, uh, in a self-hatred kind of way, but he's saying, I am lost without God. I am vulnerable without God. I can't survive without God. David knew exactly what he was doing when he said, God is my shepherd. And one thing that I really envy about that simple line, Lord is my shepherd, is the humility and the self-realization, the self-awareness that David has in his relationship with God and who he is. If for some reason we have been conditioned, especially in the West, that to need help is a bad sign. To pursue help, to show any type of weakness is a loss, is a deficit. And and, and I don't know about you, but for myself, this is someplace I struggle with myself. Maybe it's ego, maybe it's pride, I, I don't know what it is. I know that I wrestle with this. But when was the last time you said to God, to others, I need help. I need you. I can't do this without you. See, the kingdom and the economy of the kingdom is so different. We say this time and time again. In the Bible, the first will be last, and the last will actually be first. The weak will actually be strong, and the strong will be made weak. The rich will actually be poor, and the poor will actually be rich. In this upside-down kingdom, to say that we're weak and that we need and that we need the guidance of God is actually a good thing. That is a form of worship. That is how we move forward to the life that God has called us to. So where in our lives do we need to fess up and say, God, I need you? And the logic behind that is to say that I need you, God, means that I have been in a deficit somewhere else. Maybe I've failed at something. And we see failure as the F word around here. And for us, especially if you claim to be a follower of Christ, that failure is exactly what pushes us to ask for help with God and to our community. God, Yahweh, is the God that will come through for us, that shows up not too late, not too soon, but God shows up into the places where we need God to show up. 
But for many of us, the starting point is to say, God, I need your help. It's to say, God, I can't do this alone. It's a sense of humility, a brokenness. And this shift in our attitude really changes everything with our relationship with God and relationship with others. And I love this idea of being sheep. The sheep, God's sheep and as God as our shepherd, we become the subject of God's pursuit. We become the subject of God's pursuit. Here's what I mean. In the New Testament, Luke chapter 15, there's a story about sheep that Jesus talks about. Let me just read this to you in verse 1 through 6. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on, puts it, puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent at all. There's a story of Jesus leaving, this parable of Jesus leaving the 99 for this lost sheep. Though this story pertains to salvation and to people having this encounter in relationship with God, this story translates to our own lives. To each and every one of us. I think it's so beautiful that even in the midst of our humility and our brokenness and our, and our sinfulness and the ways that we've hurt others, the way that we've hurt God, and yet as we stray away from the life that God has called us to, we still become God's single pursuit. And my hope and desire is that our church will, will reflect God's heart for the one. And we'll do whatever it takes to reach people, not not only for the gospel, but how transformative and how much hope that the gospel brings to their lives through relationships, through love, through meals, through togetherness, through the way that we even do church and interact with one another. Uh, I just met somebody who came came up to me, you know, a couple weeks ago and says, Prentice, Bethany was, is the first church I've been to more than two times in a row since I was a child. And, and he was telling me about all these things that are happening in his life and just, uh, man, he was just going through a lot of stuff. And I said, well, I'm so glad that you showed up, that you took a risk at our church. And I said, by the way, how did you, how did you find out about Bethany? How did you find out about our church? And he said, I was just going, through a, going for a walk one day. And I saw a sandwich board with an arrow that said, Bethany, 9 a.m. And so that's why he showed up. And the funny thing about that is, I remember a couple weeks even before that, somebody asked me, why do you guys have so many different signs? 
Like, we know where Bethany is. We've showed up time and weeks, weeks and months and years and years. I know where the church is. I've been here. Why do you have so many signs up? And I said, well, that sign isn't for you then. That sign isn't for you. The sign, I know it's just a sandwich board, but perhaps it's for somebody who has walked along, who hasn't been to church in in decades, finally comes in and experiences a, a, a living God to resurrect his life from a life of pain and death. From what? From, from a sandwich board. That's why we bring that out. That's why we do the things we do. And I know that's a silly example, but my hope and desire is that as long as I'm pastor at this church, that our church will be about that one. We are the 99. We're good. All right, we're, you're awesome. This church is for you, and we want this place to be a place where you can encounter and be fed and be nourished and, and to serve. And we want to ask the question, Who is that one? What can we do to love our neighbors, our community, the children, the schools? When I was a pastor, or when I was in seminary, I had this tradition uh, of going to class, and I would listen to this band. Some of you guys might have heard of them, but it's a band called Shane and Shane. Uh, and it's this Christian duo, guitar, you know, acoustic musicians. And uh, there would be this song that said uh, something like, ask and I'll give the nations to you. And I remember I would be on my longboard. I was in California going to seminary and I was on my long skateboarding to class listening to this song. And I would sing this out loud. It would say, ask and I'll give the nations to you. And so then I would pray and I would say, God, I'm asking, give me the nations. What does that mean? What, is it, what does it mean to ask for the nations and it'll be given to me? Like, well, I don't know what that means. And, and just slowly, slowly, I was just feeling compelled uh, in this calling. You will be a pastor. Like, God is calling me into the ministry to be a pastor. And, and then I'll say, okay, as a pastor, who, who are you calling me to? Who, you know, who are the people that you want me to reach? Uh, and for some reason... I don't know why, but the word freaks and weirdos came to my mind. And I don't know if it's a God thing or if it's a, if it's a me thing. Uh, I don't know what it is, but I felt like I was called to be a pastor of a church of the freaks and weirdos. And so welcome. <laughs> I don't know what that says about you. I don't know what that says about me. Uh, but as I was examining what that means is, uh, again, as long as I am pastor, our church will always be for the freaks and the weirdos, the one that was lost and now is found and that makes transformative life and makes us conduits and servants of the con that God has given us. And so for those of you that are hurt, this church is for you. For those of you that are broken, this place will always be for you. For those that are pursuing Christ and your relationship is great and you're, you know, you're practicing the disciplines, wonderful. This church is for you too. For those of you that have felt betrayed, this church is for you. For those of you that have ever been the betrayer, this church is also for you. You are welcome here.
The church is for the marginalized, for the oppressed, for the refugees, for the poor. We want this place to be, and it is for you. Knowing that this is a space that you can meet with Yahweh, God, the one who will be who you need God to be and will be your shepherd. As I invite the worship team back up, there's a couple things I want to just wrestle with and to be thinking about. Where is it in your life that you need God to show up? And maybe just for a moment, as we take this inventory, we'll just listen to the music. You can sing if you want to. You can listen. And maybe the prayer is, God, I need you. And maybe that first step is to confess our need and surrender. God promises that God will show up. May we have faith. May we believe that. Maybe in the midst of joys and even chaos, that God will be who we need God to be. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you have promised us to be God, Yahweh, the one who will show up for us. And so God, in the places where we are faithless, give us faith. In the places where we're hopeless, give us hope. In the places where there's sorrow, give us joy. Even if it's in the waiting, may we wait patiently, may we wait faithfully. God, for those of us that have a has an issue or a problem, which is me, and just asking for help and for being vulnerable and to being weak. God, may we know that that is where your strength works best. We thank you for showing up for us. In your name we pray, amen.